Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Throughout each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone, and that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We cultivate leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today we'll be hearing from Dr. Kevin Worsler. Dr. Worsler received his THM in New Testament Studies and his PhD in Old Testament Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary. Currently, he is an Associate Professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at Criswell College in Dallas, Texas, where he also serves as the Program Director for the BA in Biblical Studies. Without further ado, Dr. Kevin Worsler. Well, happy Valentine's Day to you all. I am still a bit perplexed why the Old Testament professor who is single was asked to preach today on Valentine's Day. I do have it on good authority that I was not the first one asked, but nonetheless, it was obviously God's plan all along for me to be up here today. So, uh, in keeping with that, and also uh, um, Adrian mentioned uh, Ash Wednesday, I'm going to talk about that as well because I think it's an unusual occurrence when two things come together at the same time. It's an especially unusual occurrence when they might conflict with each other. Because one of the things that might happen with Valentine's Day is that people will be taken to nice meals. It's one of the things that people will do if you're, you're special, that special someone in your life, you're going to go to a nice meal and you're going to eat. But if you know anything about Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, that's not generally the thing that you would do <laughs> at the beginning of Lent. So a little bit of a conflict, but I'm hoping that by the time I'm finished with you uh, talking today that you'll see that there is a connection between those two. And uh, what I want to do is to start with the concept of gift giving, because there's going to be gift giving going on, and a lot of things have to go into that, and especially, I think, more so on Valentine's Day than at Christmas. Sometimes we give gifts at Christmas because it's more obligatory. You know, you get with a family and you just have to get something for that uncle that you don't like or that cousin or maybe sibling or something like that. But this is a different kind of gift giving. This is to give to someone special in your life, someone special that you want to demonstrate some, some way, form of saying that you love them. And so this is a special day of gift giving. But you know what makes gift-giving especially challenging? One is, of course, to know what a person wants or what they can use. And there will be a lot of mistakes made today. For example, giving milk chocolates to someone who's lactose intolerant. Or perhaps giving uh, flowers to someone who has bad allergies. Uh, Certain things might take place. So some mistakes, I'm sure, will be made. But what makes gift-giving especially challenging would be the most annoying ones to give gifts to. What makes someone annoying to give gift to? Well, someone who has everything they want or need. That creates a problem. 
Uh, I'm notorious at this. You could ask friends of mine and they'll tell you that I'm terrible about saying what I would like. They ask me like for Christmas or birthday, what would you like? And I tell them, and before we get to the event, I go out and buy it myself. It's absolutely horrendous. That's like the worst thing you can do to anyone. And I've been told that many times before. But giving something to someone who doesn't really need or want anything, that's challenging. Uh, The other annoying type of person is the one that you're giving a gift to someone who is uh, just... Well, now I forgot my thought. Okay, I had my second one there. It'll come to me in a moment. The annoying thing of giving gifts. I want us to think about giving a gift today, a special gift to a special someone in our lives. The special someone in our life you would expect, since we're here, worship in chapel, is the Lord himself. And the Lord is one who is most annoying to give a gift to because he already has everything. There's nothing that you're going to give him that he needs. If you're trying to give a gift to him, you have to figure out what he wants and what would be most appropriate But what you really want to do, since it's Valentine's Day, is you want to give him a gift that expresses your love and devotion to him. That's what you want to do. Because if you really want to say, I love you, Lord, there are many different ways to say that. I can tell you this, he's not interested in chocolates, he's not interested in flowers, But I do have an idea for a gift. And I want to take us to the book of Leviticus to find it. Okay, now some of you, I guess I've been too talkative about my sermon, and people already know I'm going to be in Leviticus. But I am almost certain that some of you are going to be thinking about Leviticus 19. Because you know in there you have love your neighbor. And you're thinking, oh, the word love, Valentine's Day, that should fit. That's not where I'm going. I want you to look at Leviticus chapter 1. Now, some of you, your minds are going to be going, and if you've had Old Testament survey, you're thinking, Leviticus 1, Leviticus 1, what's in there? Well, the first seven chapters of Leviticus are highlighting the offerings of Israel. And there are five major offerings in Israel. The first one, the one that I want to talk about, is the burnt offering. Oh, I mentioned Ash Wednesday is going to come in here. Well, anyway, burnt offering, okay? The second one, the grain offering. The third one, the fellowship or peace offering. And then there's the sin offering. And then there's the guilt or trespass offering. Those are the five major offerings of Israel. If you take Old Testament survey, you'll probably have to know some details about each one. But I want us to look at this first one, because here's something that is very important in understanding the offerings of Israel, that they each represent something different. 
There's a reason why there are five and that there are five different ones. Let me first of all talk about the uh, misconceptions that people have about the offerings. One of the things I kind of enjoy, but then it gets old after a while in teaching, Old Testament, is that most of my time I spend correcting misconceptions. Because the Old Testament is just not understood too well in a lot of our Christian communities. We don't hear it preached as often sometimes, but also as New Testament believers, we just don't understand what's going on in the Old Testament. And there are so many passages that are confusing. Well, with the offerings, one of the misconceptions that people have is that all of the offerings are obligatory. That means they must be done at a prescribed time and a prescribed place. Now, the prescribed place is certainly there, but at a prescribed time. There's an assumption that if God commanded these offerings, then they should be doing them, probably every time they go into the tabernacle or into the temple. And that's simply not true. There are really only two out of the five that are mandatory or obligatory, and that is uh, the sin offering and the guilt offering. And the reason for that is those are specifically for sins committed. And you're asking, uh, you're, well, you're confessing those sins to the priest, but also the offering is related to making atonement for those sins. So those two are mandatory. But a lot of people are not aware that the first three offerings are not obligatory. They're not uh, prescribed at specific times. Like, how often do I bring a burnt offering? However often you want to bring a burnt offering. If you only bring one in your lifetime, and that's your choice, then that's what you bring. Same with the grain offering. The grain offering is something that you can do it, at, you certainly are going to do it at harvest time, but which harvest? You have a lot of different harvests. Maybe your crops are at different times than other people, and, and maybe there's a different way that you want to bring it. Uh, they're not obligatory. You don't have to bring it every single time. And the third one, the fellowship offering, is especially this way. You bring the fellowship offering, and it's shared by the priest and their, their families and, and your family and others who are gathered around. But there is no prescribed time. So we get the impression that every command that God gives is you need to do this in this way at this time in this specific, you know, context. And that is not true for all of these things. The other thing is a lot of people have the misconception that all of these five offerings are about atonement and sin. Well, I already told you the last two are definitely about sin, definitely about atonement. But when you read about the grain offering in Leviticus 2, there's no mention of atonement because it's a gift given. It's actually about thanksgiving, but there's no blood sacrifice, and so there's no atonement. The third misconception is that, and this is the one I want to kind of zero in on a little bit, is the precisely detailed prescription. Because we think that anytime we encounter ritual, and that word I'm going to use a couple times today, anytime we encounter ritual, that it is precisely prescribed. You do not deviate from it. 
Now, in some traditions, that might be true. Uh, my mother, if she were here, would probably talk to you about going to, because uh, grew up in, uh, she grew up in northern Indiana, heavily Catholic, Roman Catholic, and she went with her Catholic friends to uh, Mass and different things when she was growing up, even though she didn't believe those things. Uh, she still went, and she would uh, tell me many times that there were always these nuns that were sitting, like, behind the children and the kids, and they would rap you on the head if you did something wrong, you know, like smack you, rack you on your head, whatever, that they were just mean. And uh, it's because you weren't doing it right. And so the whole pressure is, I have to do it exactly the way that it's supposed to be done. But I want you to understand that the term ritual itself, even though it has the idea of a ceremonial act or action, it doesn't always mean that every little detail is prescribed. Take a look at Leviticus 1. I'm not going to read all this chapter. Actually, there are three major parts to the burnt offering. The first one is going to talk about bringing an offering from the herd, second one from the flock, and then for those who do not have any animal from the herd or flock, they can bring a bird. We're not going to go through all of the details of this, but I'm going to tell you that uh, this going through this passage uh, last year, I went through a series with a group of Christians on the offerings of Israel and how they tie into our Christian lives. So it was kind of, it was a new study for me. I'd never really done that to try to figure out how the symbolism and the meaning of each of the offerings ties into our own Christian lives. So this one particularly stood out to me because it is not about specific sin. It does mention atonement, but the atonement, I'm going to say, is for the person, not for a specific sin, okay? Also, I'll, uh, I'll tell you, some of you in my Old Testament classes know I have a strong opinion about this, that atonement is about cleansing more than it is about covering. Actually, it's not about covering. It's about cleansing. So atonement cleanses. It cleanses the guilt from sin. It cleanses the person so that you can actually appear, because you are a sinner, appear before a holy God. So let me go ahead and start reading in verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And I'll just mention already that if you read down in chapter 1, that's not even absolutely prescriptive because a bird can be brought too. So it's not giving you all those details. Verse 3, though, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat on the wood that is on the fire, on the altar. 
But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now there are lots of details in this. But I mentioned to you about our misconceptions of offerings, and here's the way I want you to think about this passage, because I know how we think about it. Oh my goodness, all the details have to be done just right. That's what we're thinking. But I want you to notice that in the sense of prescription, yes, we are told very specific things that are very important that must be done every time a burnt offering is given, because that symbolism is very important. But I also want you to notice that there are a lot of things that are not mentioned in this passage. What words are said? Are there any? When it says arrange them on the wood, the pieces of the animal on the wood, how? Do you do a circle? Do you do a square? Do you do it in some kind of symbolism? I'm bringing all of this up because here's the problem. Israel had the same problem as we do, that we think that whenever the Lord tells us, do this, that we think that he has something absolutely precise in mind. And if you deviate one bit from that precision, he will not accept it. And that is not at all the way that any of these rituals of Israel are written. Let me give you another example that's similar, and that is, I know that when we're reading the end of Exodus, where do we get tripped up all the time? It's the design of the tabernacle and all of the furnishings in the tabernacle. And we think, oh, how detailed. Well, what you need to do is to take that material, that text, and give it to someone who's an artisan or a craftsman and say, here's how you are to do this. And you know what they're going to tell you? How? There's not enough detail. Put cherubim in the tapestry? What's a cherubim? What's a cherub? What do they look like? What colors do I use? How do I arrange it? How big should they be? If you start asking questions of the text, you realize that God has given design, but he has opened the door for another aspect of how we were all created. And that is, he gave us creativity and imagination. That ritual is not just to be done in some strict prescribed way, every single time the same way. You know what happens when that's done? It becomes old. It becomes meaningless. It becomes mindless. Now, I'm, not, I'm probably preaching to the choir, as they say, for many of you in your traditions, because you'll probably say, well, that's why I'm not Catholic. Okay? And you'll say, well, that's not why I'm part of that tradition. But that's one of the errors that can be made is overly prescribing and never infusing life into ritual. That's one of the errors. I think we're going to have the problem on the other side, and that is trying to get rid of all ritual. That's the other side. 
And if you're thinking that, well, we don't have rituals here, what did we just do a few moments ago? What did you just do? Do we have prayer? Do we have, well, what I'm doing? I mean, in chapel right now. Because ritual is just an act or an action. And here's how I want you to start thinking about what God is giving his people. He is not telling them, you do this this way precisely or else. I already told you this is a voluntary offering. He is saying, here are the things I want you to do, but you do it when you want to, when you desire to do this. And let me just pull two things out of the symbolism. This is going to get us into what does God want for Valentine's Day, okay? Two things, and they're connected. One is the laying on of the hand on the animal. What is the symbolism of laying on a hand of the animal? And notice it's not the priest who's doing it. It's the worshiper. It's the one who brings the animal. By laying a hand on the animal, there is an identification of the worshiper to the animal. But then what happens to this animal? Now, one thing, we don't understand just how valuable these animals are in the ancient world, and particularly in Israel. I mean, when you're dealing with an animal from the herd or from the flock, you're not just talking about meat. I mean, we might be thinking, you know, you see a cow or a, a bull, you're saying, ooh, steak, you know, or something like that. There's a lot more going on. I mean, cows give milk. Uh, bulls can reproduce. Uh, and make more, you know. And, and when you're dealing with sheep, you've got the wool. You've got, uh, I know many of you may not drink goat's milk, but goats do that. And also their uh, hair as well is useful. There's a lot more to an animal. This is an incredibly valuable animal. And I want you to notice that when you're identifying with this animal, it is without blemish. It is a good animal. Don't be like the problem in Malachi where they're starting to bring all their leftovers. You bring the best, and you're giving it to the Lord, but what are you doing? You're identifying with the animal, and the whole thing is burned up before the Lord. And you're there watching that. And you might be thinking, this could have been, you know, well, the smell of the meat cooking... Now, that's the fellowship offering. That's like a barbecue. This one, you don't get to experience any of that. That's all for the Lord. You know, one of the reasons why some of these texts don't have a commentary to go with them in the text is because the symbolism is so ridiculously obvious that it would be stupid to talk about it. If the whole animal is burnt up and you have already identified with that animal, what's the symbolism? You're devoting your entire self to the Lord. You're giving all of yourself to the Lord. That's not just part of you, but all of you. This is not an offering that is based on, I've sinned, let me confess it, and let me do it. This is an offering of, I want to show the Lord that I am devoting my entire self to Him. That's what I want to do. You want to know what God wants for Valentine's Day. 
It's that he wants all of us. He doesn't just want part. He wants the whole thing. I know we sing the songs about that. We talk about it. We say it. But here's the critical thing about ritual. First of all, let me tell you about ritual one other way. Three major purposes for ritual. One is teaching. This is especially helpful when you have an illiterate society. Throughout the history of the Christian church, there were times when coming to worship, people didn't have texts in front of them. They didn't read anything. But they're hearing, seeing, experiencing. But that is to teach them their theology. There's an awful lot about teaching theology, of bringing an incredibly valuable animal and then burning it up before the Lord, identifying with it and burning it up. Another aspect is reinforcement. You know communion, this do in remembrance of me. Reinforcing what you already know. That's another aspect of ritual. And the third one is the one I want us to especially focus on, and that's expression. Expressing that something that you cannot express any other way. You know, it's one thing for an Israelite, an ancient Israelite, to pray to the Lord and say, you know, Lord, you have all of me. Everything I am, everything I have, it's all yours. But it's another thing to actually be given, and please note, God has given this as an act of grace to his people, a way to express it, a way to actually show him that we love him entirely. We have a completely different notion when we're thinking of this because we're probably going to places like Isaiah 1 where the people were doing it in a mindless way. They were not following the Lord's commands and they were just doing these things in meaningless ritual. And you know what the Lord tells them in Isaiah 1? Shut it down. But not shut it down because I don't think it's important. He's the one who commanded it. Shut it down because it's become meaningless. It doesn't have any life in it. You know the thing that brings life to ritual? is not doing it exactly the same way every time, is not just tacking on communion the last five minutes of a service because we have to do it because it's the first of the month or quarter, and it doesn't really have any meaning to the rest of the service anyway. Uh, you know, speaking of communion, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, uh, I could ask you the English question. Think about that sentence. As often as you do this, how often? What does it tell us? Some traditions will say every single time we meet. Some traditions say once a month. I don't see month in the sentence at all. Once a quarter. Once every five to ten years. I hope it's not that bad. Uh, as often as you do it, you know what? That ritual has built into it the freedom to decide how often do we need to do it. And when we do it, does it have life? How do we bring life into that? I don't think it's a good idea for us to just throw out all ritual, but I also don't think 
it's a good idea for us to just do everything the same way every time. What happened in Israel is a danger for every single one of us. But getting back to this gift, if the gift is to give your whole self, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I plan to be here this afternoon, so I don't want any fire alarms going off. Do not bring an animal and try to do this, okay? This is Old Covenant. We have New Covenant now. However, there are a lot of ways to express your love and devotion to the Lord and to do it in such a way where you are saying, Lord, all of me, everything, everything I am, everything I have, all that I am is yours. And you know what is going to make it most meaningful for you? And here's my challenge to you today. This is my challenge. I want all of you. I won't be looking over your shoulders, but God will. I won't. Uh, the challenge is this. This is an unusual day. I mean, Valentine's Day. Someone special in your life. All of us have at least one, if we know the Lord. Oh, I remembered the second point. Maybe that was God's <laughs> point. Annoying gift giving. Okay. Okay, now I lost it again. <laughs> this is crazy. I normally don't do this. What were my last words before I said that? Somebody remember? What was I saying? It reminded me. What's that? Someone special in your life. Ah. The two things that, okay, the two things that come together. I have never done this before. I have no idea what you're doing to me right now. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. We'll keep going, okay? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to come up with something that's unique. Something you've never done before. Maybe it means jumping outside of your traditions to someone else's traditions. If you see Dr. Graham today, you'll notice he's got something on his forehead. <laughs> you can ask him about that, okay? There's a possibility. Here's the problem. We are so afraid of any sort of ritual thing that we're assuming that if I do it, it's automatically going to be mindless because all ritual is mindless. All ritual is not mindless. You know when ritual is not mindless? Is when you do it for the first time. There's nothing mindless about doing something for the very first time. So my challenge is, if you are going to give the Lord a gift today, if you're going to express to him, there are so many different ways you can do this. I mean, I said burnt offerings off the table, but let me read to you the passage from the New Testament that I believe connects directly to the burnt offering. Chapter 12 of Romans verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Especially verse 1. 
a living sacrifice. You know how oxymoronic that is? How ridiculous that is? Sacrifices aren't living. You give a sacrifice, it's going to be dead. We are living sacrifices. We're not bringing animals anymore because Jesus already dealt with all the sin and all the atonement that we need. Oh, and if you're wondering why I'm wearing this, you know, you might think, you know, appropriate for Valentine's Day, hearts and such. I'm thinking of blood atonement here. Maybe that's because I'm single. I don't know. (laughs) Blood atonement here. Christ's blood. Why do we need ways to express our love to him? Because of all that he has done. Oh, now I remember it. Have you ever tried giving gifts to someone who outgives? That was the second one. Why I couldn't remember it before. The one who gives more than you do. It's annoying to give somebody a gift and then they have to outdo you. And then the next time you give them a gift, are you supposed to outdo them? How does that work? There is no possible way that you're ever going to be able to outgive God. If you are a human being, he gave you life. If you know him, he gave you life twice. There is no way that you're going to be able to pay for that. So, outgiving him? Impossible. So, my challenge to you today is find something. And here are the three requirements. Here's the assignment, everybody. Do something unique you've never done before. It could be as simple as a prayer, but the problem is we tend to pray all the time. But maybe you don't pray in certain locations, or you don't pray certain ways, or you don't pray with certain words. You know that we have 2,000 years of history of people who express their love and devotion to the Lord through prayers, and you can find them quite easily. Uh, Do something thoughtful. You know, there are moments in my life when the Lord will do something, and I'll just say, well, thank you. And that's great, but that doesn't cover it. I might even say, wow. Wow is a great word, but it's limited. But what if, instead of just the spontaneous expression, I actually step back and write a poem, or write it in words that express it so much more deeply than wow, or a thanksgiving to God. We've got a bunch of thanksgiving psalms, but it has to be something unique. It has to be something thoughtful, and the other thing is it has to be something intentional. Find something, something today. This day needs to be marked specifically. We do it for human beings. We do it for everyone else. Valentine's Day, giving a gift to someone special, but it needs to be something that you're going to remember. So find something. Um, In terms of giving ourselves completely to the Lord, I've got two little poems for you. One is by Christina Rossetti. You might not know that name. Some of you do. 
She wrote children's literature. She wrote uh, a, a, a lot of different things, devotional material. But she also wrote a poem. You might not know this poem as a poem, but as a song. In Christmas time, you might have heard the song. It's an old carol called In the Bleak Midwinter. And Gustav Holst, who uh, did a lot of things, the planets and other things, set it to music. But at the very end, and strangely enough, both these examples have to do with the nativity. So it's weird because it has to do with giving gifts to the Lord. But here are the words in the last phrase, in the last verse. What can I give him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what, can, what I can, I give him. Give him my heart. And then I was in Dr. Creamer's office asking about metaphysical poets. Since he's going to be talking to me, we can maybe bring that up. I don't know. Uh, but there's one thing that you mentioned to me about metaphysical poets that stands out to me. And that is metaphysical poets, John Donne being probably the most prominent one in the uh, 17th century. I've got one from Richard Crashaw, but metaphysical poets, the one thing you said that really stood out was they did something different from what everybody else was doing. Something different, and that's what captured it, and that's what kind of drove it forward. I'm still not sure I understand all the implications of metaphysical in that statement, but, but the point is it's something different. Richard Crashaw, 17th century, wrote this. It's, it's 17th century, so bear with me. A little different than the way we speak nowadays, and also poetry. To thee, meek majesty, soft king, of simple graces and sweet loves, each of us his lamb will bring, each his pair of silver doves, till burnt at last in fire of thy fair eyes, ourselves become our own best sacrifice. Once again, he wants us. You can't outgive him, and he does have everything, but he wants us, all of us. So this Valentine's Day, think of the burnt offering <laughs> and giving of your entire self to him. And also the ashes go with that, too. You know what the ashes represent, by the way? You came from dust. You are going back to dust. Your own mortality. And it leads you into Lenten season, which actually leads you to Holy Week and the work of Christ on the cross. It's actually a beautiful ritual. And I'm sure there are many people that do it, and it's meaningless to them. But if you've never done it, it won't be meaningless. All right. So uh, I'll do this quickly. Uh, I oh, want to ask one I'm question. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, we always tell our uh, professors, however long you go, you get to go. Everybody can ask you questions in your office anytime. <laughs> so uh, I hope they do bring questions to you. I want to ask one question. Maybe we have time for one question out here if we've got uh, mics. Are we, do we have mics? Anybody out here offering Q&A help? Ah, you'll just have to yell if you want. It's fine. We're, we're, oh, we're good. Go. 
So uh, here's my one question. We'll see if anybody has a question to add to it. Um, in all, f first of all, great. I appreciate the message so much. Great opportunity for us to say, what, you know, what will I do today to say to the Lord? My, I, my whole self belongs to you. I give, I give it all to you. So many people do it going into Lent with fasting or, and you mentioned prayer, praying. It could be writing a poem. It could be offering an act of service. It could be so many different things. I really appreciate you bringing that to the, to, to the fore. The fact that you went back into Leviticus and did this is sort of reminiscent of your whole life because you did New Testament studies. Oh, uh, yeah. In addition, you know, yeah. just becoming a Christian, you, when you went into theological studies, you studied the New Testament enough to become a professor of Greek and New Testament. But then, somehow or another, got dragged into the morass, the abyss of the Old Testament and Hebrew, and have given your life to that. What drew you to Old Testament studies rather than New Testament studies as sort of the focus of your very ministry? Not that you choose one over the other, but do you right. know what I mean? No, very simple yeah. answer to that question, and that is in my New Testament studies, I realized that the Old Testament was the best background to the New Testament, and I didn't know it. So I went into Old Testament studies to understand my New Testament better. Amen. That was the reason. Amen. Now, it's a dumb thing to do to do Ph.D. at that level when you don't know something. <laughs> um, so that was dumb. But as far as going to the Old Testament to understand the New, that was the whole purpose of it. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I really appreciate that. I think uh, it's been my experience, and this is true with you, it's been my about, about you, it's been my experience that the things we're weakest at if we give our attention to those things, they become the things we're best at. And yeah. so it's, uh, it's just the way the Lord shapes us. Okay, anybody have uh, one question for uh, Dr. Worsler and then we'll uh, finish up for the day. Uh, thank you for your message. I actually had a question about like um, the professors and you, I kind of think of like teaching as a ritual and it's something that y'all do all the time and I, Whenever I ask my sisters or I try to teach my sisters or mom things that I learned from Criswell, sometimes it's discouraging. And so I thought about like how much more it could be discouraging sometimes as a professor when students aren't willing to learn or sometimes, I don't know, being at Criswell is just a tough thing. Like we're learning all these new concepts. Some of us don't even know. Some of, when I came here, I didn't know what the word theology meant and stuff like that. And so um, y'all just stay such a light to us as students. And so I was curious on how y'all kept going in these originals and how y'all like kind of shake it up, but also stay consistent and uh, yeah. Okay. The one laughing should uh, be answering this over so, here. Uh, that, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a really thoughtful question. I appreciate you asking. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your well, answer. Well, the ritual, I'm glad you mentioned ritual because it's something we're doing. It's structured. It's regular, all of that. But the only way, it's the same thing that I would say for all ritual, it has to have life infused into it. I'll tell all of you this, that from semester to semester or year to year, you're the ones who bring the life in, honestly, because... Well, it's different, uh, unless you're one of those who takes the same class several times. We won't talk about that, but I mean, if I have a different batch of students, and I think of each class as its own personality based on the combination, I, there has to be life infused in it, and uh, that's just the way ritual works. And uh, I, you know, I have a terrible case of ADD, so I figured that, you know, I'm going to get bored with whatever I do for any period of time. I've not become bored with teaching. And really, it's 
because there's life coming in. And there are times when we have to change things up. I have to do something different. And so ritual can have life in it. We don't just dump it out. We, we have to do something to it. If I can uh, add into your, to your answer and just say, and I see, that, I see this in you also, and I know among, among professors, we all, we all have a tendency to just teach the same thing over and over and over again, because you do have new students come in, they don't know it, and so you, you, know, you have an opportunity just to repeat yourself. I had a professor who said one time when I was in my PhD studies, he said, I mean, I've taught this stuff so many times. I know at seven minutes until the hour, I'm going to tell a joke about Dr. Pepper, and then I'm going to have, you know, and the whole, the whole course, you know, was just something that by rote, he just did the same thing over and over again. Now, I think it's really important to get this uh, concept. The best professors don't do that. They do teach the same material that you have to get over and over again, but they're always learning themselves and therefore folding something new into the class, not because they, they want to do something new for you, but because they are different than they were the previous semester. And it should be that way. And I'm, I'll say this, and if you want to add a word to conclude it today, it'd be really nice uh, if, if you feel like doing that. If you don't, that's okay. It would be a miserable failure. <laughs> okay. But I'd like for you to oh, do it if you, you want to, okay. but only if you want to. Only if no, I want just, to. That, right. that was ridiculous. No, uh, you I, know what I'm saying. Yes. If you want to throw something on the end of this, yeah, please do. Fine. My point is this, that when we, when we do ritual... We can use it the same way you would think of somebody coming to offer a sacrifice. They show up at the tabernacle or temple. They offer the sacrifices. You know, I, let's say it, that it is redemptive. Let's say it, it's a guilt offering, a sin offering. And now I'm made right, and I can go back, and I can do the same thing I was doing before. Well, that, that would be ridiculous because before you ended up in sin. So something ought to change about you as a result of this ritual that brought you back to a point of doing something you knew should be a part of your life to begin with. And so even in the, even in the writing of a poem or the, the participation of a fast, it shouldn't be you fast so that you can get back to what you were two weeks ago or so you can be as sincere as you were when you had an experience before. That would be like climbing the same step over and over and over again. That's not what steps are for. So every time you come to the liturgy, every time you come to a ritual, the point should be that something else is being refined in you. Because even when we offer the whole sacrifice, we know there are still ashes down here that need to be taken care of. And there's still a flesh that we need to deal with. So uh, I find that in the classroom, if, if, I, if I'm willing to continue learning, then it's fresh. And when I've stopped learning, then it's stagnant. And so I, that's my hope for all of our professors, but certainly for you as well, uh, that you wouldn't run from ritual, nor would you let it stagnate you, but that you would use it as the instigation for constant growth and change and maturation. So that's my thought. And seriously, you know, <laughs> you know I was just joking. Oh, yeah. But if you want to say something, I'd love for you to Well, one aspect of the sermon I also was going to mention is that one of the things Israel forgot in their ritual was the dynamic nature of the relationship that they have with the Lord, which is what you're bringing in. We're changing. You can say the same words, and then something happens in your life, and you say the exact same words again. You say these words and these words, they're the same, but they're different because you have gone through something that changes the meaning of those words. Yeah. So you can repeat things, but it's going to be different each time. And our relationship with the Lord is dynamic. You know, some of the worst gifts that are going to be given today 
are the same chocolates that have been given for the last 25 years in a relationship. The exact same ones you or like, the same kind? Uh, well, same. same one, same, yeah, well, not same ones, you're right. Thank you, English prof, uh, kind. 25 years ago, you liked these chocolates, so I've been giving them to you for the last 25 years. Something's wrong with that, and those are gonna be the gifts that are meaningless. It's something that changes. The relationship's changed. If the relationship's changed, the gift should too. Amen. All right, God bless y'all. Let's uh, give Dr. Orsler thanks again, and y'all are dismissed. Thank you. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.